On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits, stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how goes it? It is going so well. Uh, I'm so glad to be doing this particular episode. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one, Lance. There's no guest today. Zilch, just me and you. And we're going to talk about our thoughts on the season so far and where the heck we're going for the remaining four episodes of season three, which is uh, what is left after this one, contractually speaking anyway. Exactly. We have seven episodes in the can. This is episode eight, so we're just past the halfway point. And this season feels a little bit more progressive than season one. Season one was a sort of information gathering, talking to people who hadn't been spoken to or spoken with about the heist. I feel like this is leading somewhere. I feel like season three is leading somewhere. And I feel like an episode like this, where we bring everything into one place, go over it, sort of uh, refresh and, 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 uh, and calibrate where we're going from here. I feel like that is uh, necessary at this point to bring everything sort of in the same room and, 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 uh, and source it out. And so uh, this season has been a bit of a roller coaster so far. We kicked off the season with author and filmmaker Casey Sherman, and uh, he came out and really just uh, really kind of slapped us across the face with his information. I mean, it was a bit shocking that he sort of took a critical view of Anthony Amore. And I say that because not many people do that, you know. In fact, God, I don't know if anyone's ever done that publicly uh, in the Gardner case that I know of, um, other than maybe maybe a little bit here and there on Twitter. But But really, everyone says how good he is, how nice of a guy he is, and we don't know him. And I think that's a big distinction that we need to make uh, because I feel a little bad about the criticism that um, some of our guests have given to Anthony Amore, the uh, security director at the Gardner Museum. And he's been there since 2005 running the investigation into the art heist and where the art could be. And I feel a little bad because I kind of agree. One of our guests, um, Muddy, the Muddy River fact checker, says that they don't really owe us an investigation at all. And I think that's an actually a really good point. But with that said, Casey Sherman's criticism is important because it comes from someone who knows Anthony Amore. They've had a working relationship in the past, uh, respected each other, liked each other. And Casey Sherman is saying that Anthony Amore needs to step aside. He, he essentially calls for his job. I mean, I, I do feel bad with the criticism, but... 
Anthony Amore was this sort of untouchable character in the whole Gardner heist um, storyline. It was like if you said something bad about him, you were essentially saying something bad about Isabella Stewart Gardner herself because he was the face of the museum and the face of the heist and the recovery process. But Casey Sherman is from Boston. He's been writing about Boston. He's been really woven into the fabric of Boston with his uh, journalism, his books, his research. He, I mean, he has he has gone everywhere from Whitey Bulger up to you know not in Boston but the White Mountains. He's he's done research on um, the uh, the the showdown up there in Franconia and the Boston Marathon bombing, which is so personal to the city of Boston. Exactly. And also the Boston Strangler, his aunt, was one of the victims of Albert DeSalvo. So all of that being said, Casey Sherman has a resume and he has the reputation and the right to call on Anthony Moray and say, you know, here in Boston, uh, you know, we look toward, uh, you know, the success, whether it's a sports team or an investigation, you know, looking at uh, Amore's track record. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I used to be very friendly with Anthony and uh, had a lot of respect for him. But, you know, when you do the same thing over and over again and you expect a different result, you know, sometimes it is time for a change. And I do think that, you know, his narrow mindedness, uh, especially with this particular case, not allowing other real experts in terms of recovering stolen art uh, to become part of a team um, really, uh, to me, uh, you know, is the wrong way to approach um, recovering any of these stolen art pieces. It's the it's the sports comparison. I mean, people in Boston take their sports very seriously. And if any coach or any owner of the Patriots, the Red Sox, the Celtics, the Bruins, if any of them were losing for 20 plus years consistently, they would be replaced. And, and that's essentially a point that he makes publicly. He made it in an article, too, I think, for the Herald. Um, yeah. He made that point. And then we sort of discussed that with him in the episode. And uh, yeah, he, again, doubled, doubles down. Really, really says that Amore needs to open up the circle of people who are, you know, working on the investigation. We kind of key right in and, and assume that he's talking about Arthur Brand. Of course, Arthur Brand was uh, on an episode of ours from season one called Art Brand. And he is known as the Indiana Jones of the art world, the, the living Indiana Jones. Well, I think Arthur is certainly first and foremost in my mind. I've written several articles for the Boston Herald uh, about Arthur Brand and his um, offer to become very involved with recovering the art and doing whatever he can at this point to get that art back. And I've spoken to Anthony Amore um, personally about Arthur Brand, and Amore has dismissed him uh, to me, which I think is kind of the wrong approach when you have a uh, you know, a successful art investigator who's got a track record of success. And then you have a guy like uh, Amore, who's, again, spent 15 years working on one case and has absolutely nothing to show for it. And again, I think it also comes back to um, the idea that uh, it's one reward as opposed to 13 individual rewards. And again, you know, Arthur Brand has uh, certainly uh, um, championed that effort along with, you know, other investigators as you guys probably know there's a um you know former art thief in the uk uh called uh, paul turbo henry who's been uh pitching that idea for for several years now and to just be dismissed out of hand as uh as if it's the wrong approach to me is not the right approach at all we have 
uh, had email correspondences with Anthony Amore. We have asked him to come on the show, and we have not been able to rein him in. We haven't been able to uh, get a commitment on whether or not he uh, will come on the show. We don't even know if he's able to come on the show. So He's not going to come on the show. And like I'll just say it. Like It's okay. It's okay. He's, but he's not going to come on the show. And that's fine. And that's fine because I, I don't know what he would uh, be contractually allowed to say or what he would even want to say if he were to come on the show. I think he would say, shut up, you two idiots. I think that's... Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's going to be no information about the heist itself, about any investigation or any movement or any sort of change in policy the way our friend uh, Turbo wants in, in regards to the recovery process. There's not going to be anything like that if he were to come on the show. He's certainly not coming on the show and saying, listen, guys, I was, I heard all the episodes. I went to the board of the Gardner Museum, and you know what? We're restructuring the recovery process. You and, and Turbo, you, you guys nailed it. <laughs> That's a great point. Uh, that that is definitely not happening. Anthony Mori is not walking through that door, and uh, and the board of trustees are not walking through that door right now to uh, to change the reward price list. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. Kevin McHale's not walking through that door, and Robert Parrish is not walking through that door. Again, um, th- this is part of the entirety of the criticism. It really kind of centers around the reward price list and the rigidity of Anthony Moray and the board. But also, I want to mention Arthur Brand, this Indiana Jones of the art world. This guy claimed to have a great lead on the Gardner art a few years ago, and poof, it's it's gone because apparently the Gardner and the the security director Amore and maybe the board, I don't know, they aren't working with Arthur Brand on that lead. Hard to say, right? Hard to say if it's something that is just going on behind the scenes that we're not allowed to know about or if it is something that was taken from Brand to work on exclusively and the ball was dropped somewhere along the way. I don't know. But why not work with him? I, I mean, I, you know, why? What What could be the purpose? I mean, and I think Casey Sherman kind of points to ego. And again, I don't know Anthony Moray, so I can't really say that. But maybe you're right. Maybe he did. Maybe they did take the lead um, from Brand in some way. It, it doesn't seem like that's what happened based on what uh, has been written about this lead and what Brand has said on Twitter. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It doesn't feel like Brand would be somebody who would just give away a lead either. I mean, it, I mean, I'm sure he he wants the art. Like, I, I don't yeah. think it's about the reward for him. I'm sure he'd love some of the reward, but um, I'm I'm obviously he would make a huge splash as yeah. the Indiana Jones of the art world if he were to recover even one piece of the Gardner art. The the publicity would be more important to him than the reward. You can't put a price tag on that. You can't put a price tag on being the person who recovered the art from the most successful heist in. American and perhaps world history. And there's no harm in having a, a working relationship between Anthony Amore and Art Brand. Both of them can be household names. Both of them can be able to say, yeah, we, re- we did this. We recovered it. Anthony Amore can say, I enlisted the help of Arthur Brand. That was my genius move. And Arthur Brand can say, yeah, I jumped aboard. I found some leads and I did my job. And, you know, where's my TV contract? And Turbo and uh, Muddy River Fact Checker from Episodes 2 and 3, they both agree that Arthur Brand should be working on this case. So it's really hard to find someone who would disagree with that, especially because he said he had a lead. And uh, and Lance, as you know, I've uh, been reading a lot of books, a lot more since, I have since not. <laughs> the COVID-19 uh, quarantine uh, hit. 
and uh, and two of the books that I read during this this time, uh, one was Hunting Whitey, of course, by uh, the aforementioned Casey Sherman guest. Um, but another one was Priceless by Robert Whitman. So I've, I've learned a lot about art crime in, uh, in the past few months. And Whitman, I believe, was really close at one point to the Gardner artwork. And so I think that Brand was probably on the right track, too. I think there's a really good chance that uh, Whitman's lead um, with these Corsican mobsters was legit. And, and it's possible that Brand is talking to these same people or whoever has the artwork now. I mean, wh- what I learned from the book is that stolen art and stolen treasures, like the ones that FBI art crime team founder Robert Whitman helped recover in his career with the FBI is that they always resurface. So you just wait like that might be part of the Gardner um, investigation strategy, honestly, is just wait it out because things are going to surface. That's a really interesting strategy. Perhaps that's correct. I don't I don't know. Uh, You mentioned Robert Whitman. Robert Whitman is sort of a rock star. We have reached out to him a couple of times and received no response, but we're just a couple of slobs. We get it. We're just, we're not being bitter about that. You know, it's uh, it's tough to get people to respond. And and we were talking about Art Brand, and he was on season one. Um, we reached out to him for a follow up episode on season three, and uh, he he responded, but he didn't address coming on the show. He actually responded about Muddy River. Um, it was a single sentence about him, and uh, it it wasn't uh, it wasn't derogatory in any way. He was just commenting on the uh the twitter battle that was happening like this is crazy don't you think and um he didn't really respond to coming on the show but maybe we'll get him back maybe we'll get him back but anyway that that priceless book and that theory it is very interesting to uh roll the old noggin around on it's it's something that could be a tactic maybe they are waiting it out maybe they're like yeah this is exactly right you know after x amount of years in historically speaking, stolen art start, starts to pop up, and we're coming to that point now. Maybe after 30 years, something starts to uh, emerge, or not, if it's destroyed. So the, the problem with that is if Robert Whitman, again, the, the founder of the FBI's art crime team, you know, one of the best uh, ever at recovering stolen art and artifacts— if he's right and and the Gardner art, at least some of it, the Rembrandt and the Vermeer were in uh, the hands of those Corsican mobsters, that means that the the paintings could be in Europe because uh, at one point they were they were there. So then th- that is one of the reasons why I suggested that this Arthur Brand lead could be legit because obviously he is Danish. He is working in Europe. And uh, he has a book that a new book that's out called Hitler's Horses. I believe it's out in other languages, not English um, right now. Uh, if that was out in English, I would have read it by now, Lance. As you I'm know. surprised you didn't learn uh, <laughs> German just so you could just so you could read it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but I mean, so that that's why I thought that maybe he's on onto the right lead because it's been um, I don't know, like 15 years or something since the lead that Robert Whitman was talking about. So. That that would be enough time for it to have surfaced again, resurfaced, you know? Yeah, uh, just the term uh, Corsican Mafia makes me nervous. Just saying Corsican Mafia, it just feels a lot more violent than saying Italian Mafia. And we know the Italian Mafia or the Irish Mafia was rather violent. Corsican Mafia makes me think of um, Blood Eagles and things like that. 
<laughs> well, uh, yeah, actually, the description of these uh, fellows in Robert Whitman's book was kind of that, like that. They were very ruthless and murderous. And uh, so if that is where the art is now, uh, then that would be with some dangerous people for sure. And that would explain why you haven't seen it, you know? I mean, that is uh, that that is a heavily pr- protected uh, syndicate. See, look, what you have to understand, guys, and this is a broader perspective of the stolen art world. Imagine a room with all the stolen art in the world inside. You had two doors to that room. One door is the door law enforcement and Anthony Amore and investigators use to keep chipping away to try to get in. That door opens every now and again, and they go in and they snatch some stolen art back, and maybe arrest people, indict them. That happens every now and again. The other door is covered in cobwebs because that is the door where a private recovery happens, where you negotiate with the person on the other side of the door, and the door opens and the art comes out, and whatever is negotiated goes in and it slams shut again. So that's the door I'm saying we should be using in the Gardner case after 30 years. Yes, when, like the Van Gogh was stolen a couple of months ago in Holland, that is being investigated through stolen art door number one, with law enforcement trying to chip away and smash the door down, recover the Van Gogh, arrest people. Yes, right. But the Gardner case should be door two, the cobweb filled door that gets used very, very rarely. I can name cases where it's happened. The Turner case, it's happened. Several other cases that it's happened where it's been decided that the recovery of the artwork is more important than prosecutions. The thing that gives the Gardner case the advantage is that there's been so long a time, 30 years. Now, they've tried everything to go through door number one, and they can't get through it. No one has ever been able to crack door number one. So all I'm saying is let's try door number two now. But back to the reward priceless, because if that's true, I mean, and these Corsican mobsters, uh, you know, or gangsters, they, they have a couple of these paintings or even one of them. Like, this is why the priceless needs to be adjusted. The olive branch we're looking for is the Gardner Art Reward Price List. So there's 13 different rewards offered. And then we can move on to talk about the conditions. The condition, right, um, I've come up with an idea where it says good condition. Why not say two words, restorable condition? Now, restorable condition, I believe, is broad enough to cover the fact that it won't be in good condition, um, bad condition, horrible condition. Whatever condition it's in, as long as it is restorable, okay, the reward will be paid. That again, that's you know that is something quite simple. Change the word "good condition" to "restorable condition." And I do want to point out that Muddy River Fact Checker on one of the episodes he did uh, say that the actual the finial um, there is already a separate price on the finial for a hundred k, I guess. So you could return the finial and get that hundred thousand. So anyone listening out there who has that, please. Um, do the right thing with that one. First of all, it should be remembered that there is a separate price list on the finial of $100,000, which is about 20 times more than it's worth, although it probably has some kind of cachet or, you know, extra value if it was the actual stolen one. But that's not enough. You know, we really need we need more than that. Yeah, the the uh, the breakdown of um, each piece of art 
having a price tag associated with it just makes the most sense at this point. And not only because it will open up um, the opportunity for one or two pieces to then snowball into four or five or the entirety of the collection. Uh, Not only that, but it doesn't interrupt with any current investigation or technique or tactic that uh, the the people investigating it, like the like Anthony Amore might have, like it, hypothetically speaking, if they're doing the whole wait and see thing, that's not affected by changing the um, the structure of the return, um, unless I'm missing something. If you were to change the structure of the recovery of of the return uh, effort, um, I don't see how that would. I don't see. I, I could. I see those two things existing exclusively from uh, independently from each other. Um, there's no. The the one does not impact the other. Lance, I get really upset at injustices, uh, murders, stolen properties, but what interferes with your happiness? Well, Tim, everything that you just mentioned, that does interfere with my happiness. But, you know, there's just the general state of the world sometimes can get you down. Sometimes it gets uh, so dark so early now you get that seasonal depression. I know a lot of people have that. So I guess there's just a number of things that can contribute to this interference of really feeling happy. And it's disappointing, you know, and upsetting when things are uh, preventing you from achieving your goals. But that's why BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. I want to be clear about that. This is professional counseling. You can send a message to your counselor at any time and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without ever having to sit in that uncomfortable waiting room. You hate waiting rooms. If you hate anything, it's waiting rooms. That's confirmed. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. And the service is available for clients worldwide. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. And Tim, there's licensed professional counselors who you know are specialized in, I'll give you a couple, depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, affordable. Hey, if you don't believe us, why don't you go toggle your butt over and check out the testimonials posted daily on their site? And this is not a crisis line. This is professional counseling. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They are recruiting additional counselors in all of these fine 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash empty frames. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash empty frames. There are really smart people on the board of directors. They can make these changes. They can figure out a way to do it. And also, Turbo, uh, from one of the episodes, suggests changing the terminology of good condition to restorable condition. And I think that's a really important piece of this reward price list change that we're pushing for, too. 
Yeah, I agree. And I would push that even one step further and say any condition because restorable condition is a, a bit, I guess, ambiguous. It's like how far gone would it have to be before you could restore it to some sort of condition? You know, it could be nearly destroyed and you can put some, um, you know, duct tape and scotch tape on it and say, look, now it's it's restored to the best condition possible. I would say any condition. These artworks um, were damaged uh, during the heist itself. So uh, the idea, again, that they're all in good condition to me is a is a long shot. I think, you know, that language should be, uh, you know, tweaked or revised. You know, the, we just want the art back, regardless of what condition they are in. You know, there are art restorers who can work on these types of pieces to actually, you know, get them or improve them enough where they can be put back on the walls of the gardener. But I think, you know, beyond the beauty of the individual art pieces themselves, the idea that the art is returning uh, to the Gardner Museum would help with a lot of healing within not only the art community here in Boston, but um, the law enforcement community as well. I'm okay. I signed the petition to have the um, the price list. I don't think it's that essential. I don't, you know, if the, if the art is lost and no one knows where it is, then a price list isn't going to change that. I don't think it's the most essential thing. I do think they have professional people to negotiate with it. But if Arthur Brand, who has actually negotiated these kind of things, says he, it would be helpful, then I think we're entitled to a non-rancorous discussion about the pros and cons. And I wanted to mention, definitely check out uh, Casey Sherman's book, Hunting Whitey. Uh, obviously, Whitey Bulger as a um, a figure in the Gardner case comes up a lot in our investigations, like uh, in in season one especially. Um, but Casey Sherman's page turning book called Hunting Whitey really documents the capture and killing of um, hunt of Whitey Bulger. And, uh, and really, he claims that Whitey Bulger was not involved in the Gardner art. And actually, they, they go into some detail in the book about how um, Whitey Bulger said that him and his partner, I believe Kevin Flynn, they gave some beatings around um, the town to local gangsters just trying to find out who did it. And they couldn't find out. And so when Whitey Bulger was arrested, I think it's fair to say that he probably would have used that but also he was going up the river no matter what you know so maybe he wasn't giving up anyone he did hate rats he hated them even though he was one uh, the dirtiest rat of all actually well i think his um his significant other would have been a good reason for him to give up some of the artwork to reduce her sentence at least great um, point and he never did that's an that's a great point because what did she end up doing like 16 years or something I forget what she was sentenced to, but she didn't definitely didn't serve that much. She's she is out uh, as of the current uh, recording of this, um, and hasn't been out for too long. So maybe ten years she served or something like that. But regardless of the amount of time she did, she was going to do time. And uh, you'd think that if Whitey had the opportunity to provide something that would re- would reduce her time, because he knew nothing was going to help him with his time, he probably would have done that. But we do know that he told everything to Chris Duet of Criminal Perspective in multiple letters. He confessed to numerous crimes, including the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, and told Chris where the paintings were. Uh, not true, though you should listen to Criminal Perspective on the Crawl Space <laughs> Network. Uh, it is a great show where Chris uh, interviews uh, killers from 
prison, and he did have some correspondence with uh, Whitey Bulger, so you're not making that part up. Um, and I believe they even talked about the gardener, but um, Whitey said he didn't know anything about it. Now, Tim, you mentioned um, Arthur Brand and Anthony Amore and Robert Whitman. These are known um, art investigators, and a couple of them have actually returned artwork. But then we have this character, uh, Chris Marinello, who has been thrown into the mix. And Chris Marinello operates a company called Art Recovery International. And if you go to his website, he credits himself as being one of the world's foremost experts in in recovering stolen, looted, and missing works of art. He's a lawyer. Chris Marinello, what he does, he's a lawyer, right? He doesn't actually physically recover stolen art, say like Arthur Brand does. He's a paperwork guy. If a piece of stolen art surfaces in an auction or it surfaces at a dealer's, the insurance company that paid out the original claim would contact Chris Marinello and say, Chris, can you do the paperwork about legal ownership? He does that and gets 20% of the insurance claim. So on a million dollar um, recovery that surfaced, that he had nothing to do with it surfacing, he does the paperwork and he would get $200,000. And where do you uh, get that information from? How is that uh, 20% uh, the figure that you're certain about? Chris Marinello has told me um, the, the the range of, of what they charge in the industry ranges from 39% Mondex charges, 50% Clemens Trousson used to charge, um, the Art Loss Register charges 25%. Um, Chris Marinello says he charges 20% of the value of the claim. On Nazi looted cases, he says he charges 15%. He also says he does not charge fees. Other art recovery specialists charge ongoing fees, thousands of dollars per month or whatever, and ongoing fees. Right. So I got this from Chris Marinello himself. It's no big secret. You can go to his website, Art Recovery International, and all the details are there. Yeah, there was a little bit of a spat, I guess, that developed or maybe started on Twitter and kind of developed over email. And that was between Chris Marinello and uh, Turbo Paul. And uh, so I don't know, you know, and again, with like with Amore, I don't know Chris Marinello. I think we've had some email contact with him. He's welcome to come on the show and discuss this. But I don't understand what the infighting is all about. And I don't really know what to do being caught in the middle of it, uh, because we do see a lot of emails from people. And and there really is there's some of them are just a little out of line, to be honest, um, in some of the tweets and things like that. So, I, you know, maybe we can just all kind of uh, rise above the any kind of name calling or threatening or things like that. Everyone is pushing for the exact same thing, which is the recovery of the artwork ultimately. And Lance, uh, the storyline that we'll get into in a little bit is more about talking about the thieves, but potentially that could lead to recovering the artwork if the theory is correct. Yeah, and I want to um, just say I've got nothing against Chris Marinello. I've got nothing against uh, Art Recovery International. I think the cause is is really good. I'm just questioning the, the motivation, and I'm questioning uh, his recovered artworks. Because if you go to the website, there's a list of uh, art that's wanted, and 
the Gardner Museum is right there on the top. He even uses images from the Gardner Museum in the banner on his website, uh, the, the empty frames hanging there, which uh, we were told that we weren't allowed to do anything like that if we were promoting something. So I think that's interesting. I'm just questioning the motivation there. And, and to your point... Don't tell me what my point is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the Boston and me came out there for a second. No, no, no problem. You've been reading a lot of Casey Sherman. <laughs> I, I just I just uh, am concerned that there are individuals that are operating with some um, ulterior motives and inserting themselves for other purposes. I could be wrong, but that's just my my gut on that. Well, I see what you're saying, and I see, and I think I get your point. Um, I don't really see it as problematic right now, though, because as we were kind of just talking about the the artwork, or at least some of it, some of the the more important ones. Um, and really, they're all important. Um, but but the Vermeer and the Rembrandt could be in Europe, and so if for whatever reason, um, the gardener is blocking Arthur Brand from making a move, and whoever has the artwork now sees Chris Marinello's banner. You know, I I, I feel like that could be a good thing. You know, make that connection somehow. If Marinello's working with the the museum, great, great to have someone in Europe. I don't understand why it's not Brand. I don't understand why they all can't work together. That's the part where I I'm left scratching my head. But at least there's an effort there. Gotcha. A lot of egos going on. Yeah, that that could be what it is. And um and also Anthony Moore, I want to mention uh, Anthony Moore has written several books on um stolen art and he's got a new one that's coming out um very soon. So make sure to check that one out too. It is not about the gardener, but uh what one thing we did talk about with the Money River Fact Checker is that I would love to read a book from Anthony Amore about the gardener. So he's like he's like written books about other um, subjects in art crime, but uh, I really just think that maybe their strategy should shift in that department. And you know what? Just do it. Just go go for it. If you're the guy with all the knowledge, like, and everyone still wants to know what the knowledge is, then just do it. What, what are we waiting for? In, in the same breath, I understand where there'd be criticism on either side there. You either do it or you don't. Just figure out a way, though. You know, figure out a way where everyone's happy. You know, d- donate some to the bo- to the museum. You know, make it a dual thing. Promote it at the museum. Obviously, there's ways to make this happen. 100%. I mean, if you, if you want to email the the board of directors or, or contact uh, just the, the museum itself until you get an answer. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And Turbo Paul really pushes everyone to email the board of directors and uh, Anthony Amore and push for this price list, push for the terminology changing to restorable. And because they are doing the heist walk at the Gardner Museum, uh, the beautiful Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, by the way, go visit uh, when you can because it is a spectacular building. Um, but they do do something now, like what we're kind of talking about uh, with kind of promoting the heist, finally, after 30 years. They have something where Anthony Moray is sort of narrating you through the heist, which, honestly, a lot of people want to know. And, you know, they, they want that experience. It's it's a little bit of dark tourism through one of the, the most famous crimes in the history of the world. So why not just go with it? The empty frames are still there. Just go with it. Yeah, and and it's dark tourism, but it's also educational. You you will learn about uh, these works of art. You will learn about that time period, the the Dutch Renaissance, and that's the whole point, right? Yeah, see the paintings, and to that rigidity of the gardener. Uh, when we spoke to Brandon Sieco. 
the riveting Brandon Sieco. <laughs> he has a brilliant idea, the hacking the heist thing, and we'll uh, pop a, a link in the show notes or check that one out uh, from season one. But basically, you can wave, you can hold like an iPad or an iPhone up to the empty frames and actually see the artwork. So please implement something like that for Christ's sake. So he'd been saying to contact the museum, to contact Anthony Amore. To do that, uh, you can simply email Anthony Amore at theft at isgm.org. That's T-H-E-F-T at isgm.org. That is his email address, or you can call him directly, 617-278-5114. The information is on gardnermuseum.org. Sometimes a case comes along that is so heinous, so shocking, that it's called the crime of the century. Truth is, though, there have been a lot of those cases over the years. I'm Amber Hunt, an award-winning journalist and author, with a new podcast that marries true crime with history. It's called Crimes of the Centuries from the Obsessed Network. I'm examining stories that left a mark. Some of them are first of their kind, like the country's first recorded murder trial or first kidnapping for ransom. Crimes of the Centuries will explore not just the crimes that were committed, but what was happening in the world at that time and what effects they had on society that we may still notice today. Subscribe to Crimes of the Centuries from the Obsessed Network on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your shows. And now, Lance, uh, we wanted to talk about the storyline brought forth by our latest two guests. We've done two episodes now with them, two full interviews in episodes six and seven of season three here. They are Charles Pinning and Pamela Wall, and uh, really a couple of artists, um, a writer and an illustrator, and really interesting people who have come up with uh, what we call the most compelling single theory that we've heard about the Gardner heist, like specific to a single thief. Because really, out of all the books, all the the theories, really nothing kind of sticks so close, like, like sticks like glue, you know what I mean? And this, I'm not really sure this sticks like glue, but it's at least super interesting. <laughs> you nailed it. It 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 has its moments where things aren't really connecting, but for the most part, I'd say 95% of it makes a lot of sense. And not just on the surface, it makes a lot of sense when you're looking back at the case. Uh, there's a lot of things that play into the heist itself and the aftermath that make a lot of sense when you're talking about uh, the thieves actually being filmmakers who were doing some sort of performance art. One of the major convincers for me is that nothing has turned up. We talk about the mafia. We talk about organized crime, some syndicate, some exchanges, uh, certain leads that don't seem to pan out. And it simply could be that these artists stole all of these works, left the empty frames as a, as a message, which they said they would do. They even have an organization called the Art Liberation Front, that has it in the title. They're liberating the art. They're taking the art out of the frames, and they've said the most valuable part of a work of art is the frame if you're actually attaching a dollar value to it. And if you were to approach the heist like that, this is a message. The Art Liberation Front thing that he talks about is kind of silly in its own, but there's a lot of truth embedded in it. Joe is the mastermind behind all of this, 
And I want to ask you, uh, what exactly is the Art Liberation Front? Well, the Art Liberation Front is a group that we formed after the fact, after the crime. And basically, we're uh, creating meta-art, which is art about art. The art about art, as he says in the interview, we were making meta-art, which is art about art. So, you know, in the case of stealing a painting, right, you're doing a performance. So the art is the painting and you're making art a performance about stealing the art. So you're making meta art. It is significant that Patient has been characterized in his recent workup conference as oppositional. He has sought out a series of authority figures, teachers, law officers, art curators, etc., or limit setters to rebel against. He rebels against authority figures or limit setters, including, you know, the police and art curators. All of this, this little segment out of Sociopath, the interview with Spalding Gray, uh, which has the audience giggling and all because Joe's such a charmer, was really just jam-packed with motive information. These artists could have simply taken them and stashed them in their two-bedroom apartment um, down the street. They could have buried them. They, you know, we'll take the art and not think about it. We'll, we'll make a movie about taking the art and not think about it, which is also very fascinating to consider that there is a video documentation somewhere out there of the art theft. Our theory is that it, it was, you know, they, they went in to make a movie, which is what they do, and um, it kind of went off the rails at a certain point, you know, even though uh, Rick Abbott had, had voluntarily let them in, he was he he didn't sign on for that. But he was caught on film. He was caught on film, so he was already screwed. Now, if you again, if you go back to the '77 uh, Art Liberation Front piece in the in, in the Berkeley Barb. They talk about publicity-hungry organization were inveterate opportunists, Gibbons said. The, Gibbons, the spokesperson for the six-member group, told the Barb, Our philosophy is full of contradictions. It has nothing to do with Diebenkorn. It was about museums in general. We saw the opportunity for some publicity, and we grabbed it. And it talks about how they must always act spontaneously. And so this idea of spontaneity is something that's been in Gibbons's mind, you know, for a long time. And in fact, it's kind of the way he's lived his life. Joe's a pretty spontaneous guy. And uh, I think that what happened was they told Rick Abbott that they were going to shoot a museum robbery film, you know, and then he'd put the painting back, but it spun out of control. It went elsewhere. Well, my gosh, I would love to see that if there was uh, really some kind of film about the Gardner theft or actually filmed of during the Gardner theft, because I think it would have been on film. So we're talking about Joe Gibbons. He is a guy who has been convicted of uh, robbing banks. And he did he did rob a painting from this Oakland museum in 1977 and that is really when the art liberation front kind of came to light and you know it's it's sort of a, a goofy thing and kind of like just a bullshit um excuse to kind of steal a painting and sort of uh brand what you're doing as art itself which you know i think we, with charles and pam we kind of get into the nature of art uh, all together and and artists being kind of con men or, or a con woman in that kind of everyone is right every single artist if you're selling a product you know it's all it's worth as much as whatever someone's willing to pay for it 
one of the quotes here in this magazine or uh, newspaper from the Berkeley Barb from the fall of 1977, art and thievery are synonymous. <laughs> so it's right there. And we hear, we hear it in Joe Gibbons' voice talking about the art liberation front uh, in an interview from his film, Confessions of a Sociopath, which is available on Vimeo. And it really, it's a great watch. Um, and there is a lot of a lot of information in there. There's this interview that he does with uh, this fellow named Spalding Gray, really in front of an audience, which is really one of the more fascinating elements of it, because he's talking about stealing this painting in front of an audience. It's just it's a bizarre. It makes for bizarre moments in his wonderful film. And the audience is essentially captivated by his his uh, magnetism. He's a very magnetic uh, personality. He's very charming, and he's. Uh, got this uh, sort of energy that he exudes. He's also an alcoholic, and and he's experimented with drugs in the past. And he really lives on the on the edge. He doesn't have a job. He's opposed to having a full time job, and he wants to uh, live life a different way. He's got an alternative way of living life. And he met with uh with Pinning, with Charles Pinning, the author. And and on an aside, Charles Pinning did write a book called Irreplaceable, which has some elements of the Gardner Museum heist in there. It's a fictionalized account of that, but that was uh, sort of the catalyst for him and Pamela to do their work and, and look into another alternative. And that's how they came upon Joe Gibbons. And, and he met Joe Gibbons and had a really incredible conversation, which he describes to us. And it's really amazing to hear how someone like Joe Gibbons can just entertain the the theory that he was involved in the greatest heist in history and and he doesn't say dude what are you talking about that's not me i this could ruin me if if this gets out he he actually does the well if i were to do it i would this is how it would have gone down like it's it's incredible Right, so he kind of does that confabulation thing, and uh, and there might be some relation to when he's been intoxicated and talking about it. Uh, it seems like he does that, um, but when he's been sober, he does not uh, take take credit for uh, doing the heist at all. In fact, he's he is vehemently against uh, that. So we do know that, um, and we do know that Steve Kirchin was also there. Steve Kirchin, who wrote Master Thieves, um, obviously a very famous um, Boston journalist who wrote for the Boston Globe for very many years and wrote a million articles about the Gardner heist is in Last Scene, et cetera, et cetera. Um, great guy, by all accounts. He was there with... Charles Pinning and Joe Gibbons at this restaurant and even in Joe Gibbons's apartment at one point in New York City. So that really, I think, to me, speaks to the validity of the story of the theory of, um, you know, the Joe Gibbons theory that Charles and Pamela have brought to the table here. Just having him, like you said, having him involved in this and entertaining the the notion is enough to tell me that. Uh, there's something there, that there's something interesting enough where he would want to get involved. When we went down to New York and surprised Joe Gibbons, and we went down to a bar and talked together. And sorry, you're saying we, you mean you and Steve Kirchin? Yeah, yeah, Steve Kirchin. I. See, what that little story bears mentioning, because after we were getting nowhere, you know, with law enforcement acting on our information, we thought the best way to crack this thing would be to go public. And so uh, we got in touch with Steve Kirkshen, even though Steve had written a book called Master Thieves, Fingering Organized Crime, I knew from his reporting in the Globe that he really um, understood the facts of the theft. And so I was hoping that he could put aside his personal theory and, um, you know, 
help us get the story into the globe. And so he came down to Providence and we sat in Pam's apartment. He came down a dozen times and we discussed all of this. And so finally he and I drove down to New York and, and talked to Joe. And Joe couldn't have been more gracious until his wife got home and threw us out of the apartment, her apartment. But he came down. He wanted to keep talking to us because, you see, Joe always wanted to know, why do we think I did it? Why do you think? I, what do you know? And so he came down and we bought him a nice big mojito in the restaurant next door. And um, he talked about knowing Rick Abbott. But he did this confabula. He called it confabulation where he said, well, he went to the museum the night of the theft to buy pot from Rick Abbott. And Rick was upstairs suddenly and breaking the frames of paintings. And Joe said, no, no, Rick, that's not how you do it. To Pam and I, Joe was simply in the throes of having, he knew he was had. So in the throes of that, he was twisting the story around, blaming somebody else for what was happening. In other words, he pushed his role onto the Abbott character. But yes, and so that's when it finally occurred to us, yes, Joe had somehow met Abbott either through a drug deal, you know, buying pot from him at the museum, or maybe they both did a security job together. It's really hard to see how Joe Gibbons benefited from stealing the art. Like, it's not like it seemed like he stole them and is living high off the hog. In fact, you know, maybe kind of the opposite. He's He's robbed banks this decade, or I guess the last decade he actually filmed one with like a little camera or a phone and claimed in court that the robbery was performance art so you can see where the theory kind of starts to take form yeah and i think that's my biggest problem with the theory is that at this point in his life if he were to show conclusive proof that he was involved in the heist I don't really think that it would be that bad for him <laughs> career-wise. I, I don't know what the if there would be any jail time involved. I don't know what if any fine would be handed down. But he would go down as one of the greatest anti-heroes ever if, if he came forward. For the record, we'd love to talk to Joe Gibbons. I mean, uh, his art is really interesting, um, and we'd, we'd love to talk to him. You know, I don't know if he's guilty of this. Who knows, you know? Also from Joe Gibbons' film Confessions of a Sociopath, he goes through sort of a little ploy he used to do where he would actually steal books and then sell them for cash, for actually for drugs and, and film. He was stealing books, particularly art books, because the art books tend to be expensive. He'd, he'd steal them from a bookstore and then resell them to another bookstore claiming that they were his reviewer copies. He talks about this openly in his movie, Confessions of a Sociopath. And there's a lot of footage of him actually stealing books in various uh, stores, too. I had this, I stumbled on this, uh, this ploy with a friend of mine, and we would pose as book reviewers. And, well, first, of course, first we'd have to uh, procure books. Right. And uh, then we just pose as book buyers. Initially, he started shoplifting art books to support his habit. Wouldn't, I wouldn't go to a bookstore and say, I'm a, I'm a critic, can you give me a few books? Right. <laughs> you'd steal the books from a retail store. Yes. And you'd take them to the bookstore. Yes. Right. That was a lot of stealing, I mean, in order to get $40 a day, because you were paying rent too, right? Were you eating anything at the We time? weren't paying rent, actually. I can pay the phone bill. 
I can buy some film. Pay for this car. According to a friend of his that I talked to, he would, like for instance, hide his camera in a paper bag on a shelf or stuff like that so he could film himself stealing books in bookstores. You know, being an artist and trying to get by is not an easy gig if, you know, coming up with money. And so he would come up with money this way. But he was also, he'd, as he said to Spalding Gray, he had developed a bit of a heroin habit out in San Francisco. And so he was stealing books and picking up money that way and reselling them, claiming they belonged to him and that he'd been, you know, they had been reviewer copies. What an interesting thing to steal. When, when, when that first came up, that he did this, and, and to steal and sell. I, I guess it's easy to steal books, but is it indicative of somebody who is now raising their game, like upping their game to steal paintings, to steal works of art? And furthermore, is it upping his game to then graduate to actually robbing a bank and filming it in in retrospect it feels like those are the building blocks you'd need if you were creating this life performance art so confessions of a sociopath talks about stealing books to you know and and selling them for drugs or or selling them for cash books to paintings to bank robbery all part of this great performance art great lifelong performance art. It's a really compelling theory, like we said. Um, we don't know if it's true, but again, we'd love to have Joe Gibbons on to talk more about it. And Lance, this is The Last Dance, season three of Empty Frames. Who knows where it's going to go after our last four contracted episodes. But uh, but we will have Charles back. Um, we do want to circle back um, regarding Muddy River Fact Checker's script and Turbo. We got to revisit with Turbo again, too, before the season's over. Yeah, we sure do. We also want to uh, get Arthur Brand back on. So hopefully these interviews can uh, round out the rest of the season. Yeah, right now we're we're right at the right at the crest of the roller coaster. And like I said in the beginning of this, I, I feel like this is leading somewhere. I don't feel like this is going to stop at episode 12. I feel like contractually, like you said, that's where we are supposed to stop, but I feel like there'll be more. I feel like there'll be some feedback after this. Okay, everybody, we got four episodes left. I hope you liked this uh, discussion here between me and Lance, just kind of batting around these ideas and sort of doing a little reset. And we're going to go forth for the last third of The Last Dance. 